the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history of Welcome once again to a brand new episode of Sake on Air. My name is Justin Potts, one of your regular show hosts here, and today I am joined by Mr. Sebastian Lemoine. Hello, Justin. Nice to be with you tonight. We're back again for another special interview episode because we have a guest who has traveled all the way from... It's tough to determine exactly where you've traveled from. It seems you're always on the road here. Well, the flight left New York. Left New York. So fair enough. We'll say from New York. Um, This time around, we're welcoming Mr. Philip Duff bartender extraordinaire as well as a man who is his hand in in producing products and education and consultation um you are all over the map with regards to the world of spirits i don't know actually how best to introduce you here so how would how should people know you nowadays what is well middle-aged drunk doesn't look good in a business card so <laughs> depends on uh, who you're talking to <laughs> yeah you know on-premise expert and spirits educator so i am a ex-retired uh refugee bartender i like to say i started bartending in 10 bc in uh, my native ireland that means 10 years before we got cranberry juice yeah <laughs> and i bartended there in london in the uk in the Caribbean and briefly and illegally in the US. And then I spent 17 years living in Holland, um, which accounts for my passion for Geneva until moving seven years ago to the US full time because it's like uh, the joke, except this is true. I met a lady who lived in New York. I lived in Amsterdam, so we compromised. Now I live in New York. (laughs) Fair deal. Everybody wins. Yeah, listen, you can't negotiate with people from Staten Island. They're like terrorists. But it's hard to be in the middle though. It really is. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Very nice. So what's, what, what have you got your hands in right now? What should people know f- you for nowadays? What so is your main, name attached to? My main to gig and what pays the bills yeah. is what I like to call being a bartender for brands. Okay. So brands want to engage with the on-trade, with bartenders, with buyers. They want to build their brand in the on-trade before going to consumers and shops. So everything from new product development to engagement programs those might include bartender competitions even things like this jss tour uh right down to writing the text for bottles and labels that's a big thing for me education is a big part of that i served as the first ever education director for the tales of the cocktail festival i am uh, the academy chair in charge of voting for all of north america for actually all of the americas at the moment for the world's 50 best bars mm-hmm. i do a bit of writing for drinks international and i own my own uh, baby geneva brand since two years but mostly i'm about making sure that drinks brands don't do stupid things in the on trade <laughs> i'm very happy you're here in japan because there there's while there's a lot of great progress there have been more than a few missteps as well too i think along the way so i'm hoping there can be some fruitful collaboration uh, that comes out of this tour here uh, this time around. So this time you are here looking at shochu specifically. Is that right? That's right. Second time around for me. I was on this tour two years ago and I work closely with the Japan Sake Shochu Association in New York City where I live as well. And they do great stuff. Like we did an event uh, just about less than a year ago in the Japanese ambassador's residence on the Upper East Side. And it's so hard to get people to come to educational sessions and yeah. they're, they're spoiled. Yeah. This one, I had people who never go to any training, like calling me, besieging me with texts. Oh my God, I want an invitation to this. It was hugely successful. Yeah, I, what, actually, why do you think so? 
Uh, first of all, the Japanese ambassador's residence is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a huge gap in shochu knowledge mm-hmm. in the USA. There is a deep love of Japan and Japanese culture and Japanese food, uh, especially in New York, mm-hmm. all right? And this was an opportunity to come. There was a seminar with the bartenders who had visited this tour last year, very well-known New York bartenders from US number one restaurant, 11 Madison Park, that kind of thing. And then people could sample more than 20 different shochus. All the distillers were there. So if you get a chance to do that, you don't turn it up. Mm -hmm. In New York City, if you're doing like a gin seminar or a whiskey event, like eh, but shochu, this is the unicorn. That's why. Yeah. But the, the, the people who, who, who joined that seminar were professionals, essentially? Essentially all yeah. bartenders, yeah. really. A okay. small amount of media, too. Okay, understood. So before, I really want to dig into shochu, as that is sort of the main... Um, that, that's why you're here this For time sure. around, and you just spent the last, what, five, six days running around to distilleries? If it's Tokyo, it must be Friday. So yeah, five days. About five days. Yeah, otsukare. <laughs> um, but real quick, so before we dive in, Gin Geneva, that's sort of your a bit of your bread and butter here it's a it's a big thing i'm into i'm also a member of the gin guild which is the worldwide lobbying group uh based in london and the best way to understand it is that geneva is the great great grandfather of gin but it's the father of whiskey because initially everything that we now know and now call whiskey and bear in mind i'm from the country that invented whiskey Mm. ireland Everything was grain-based, no neutral alcohol, no barrels for the first few hundred years, and they all contained small amounts of botanicals because they were descended from medicinal compounds, right? The fir- one of the first printed recipes for uh, Irish whiskey from 1611 has fennel and licorice in it. You know, it doesn't, yeah. that doesn't sound much like Macallan to me. Yeah. So Geneva never changed. Its son or daughter, whiskey, eventually went into barrels and took out the botanicals and became what we know as whiskey today. Uh, Geneva didn't evolve, it stayed the same. But when it began to be made in the UK in a large quantity, in the UK they didn't have any distilling expertise in London, the epicenter. The distilling expertise of the British Empire was north in Scotland or west in Ireland. And those were extremely dangerous places yeah. for an English person to yeah, be. Yeah. So. The English messed it up. They started putting in 20 times more juniper. And as soon as they had a chance to use neutral alcohol instead of delicious malt, uh, pot still alcohol, they did. And they messed it up in a great way. They created something so different. It's a blessing that English people can't speak other languages because they also couldn't pronounce Geneva. (laughs) So instead, they began to call it gin. So gin is a totally different product and a totally different uh, word, which is great. There's a bit of history here because English people also could not pronounce Ishkabaha, which is the Irish name for whiskey. (laughs) So out of Ishkabaha, we got whiskey. (laughs) Whiskey. Oh, excellent. Interesting. So I'm I'm curious about uh, just a little bit about that background as well, well, because... As you're, I'm sure you're aware, Japan is really digging into the world of gin as of late. The number of producers, shochu producers in particular, that are stepping out into the world of gin production, as well as different types of botanical spirits and things uh, of that nature as well, too. They're popping up right and left. There's more than you can keep track of nowadays. You go to a liquor store here in Tokyo, and it seems like uh, you know a third of the spirit section is um, covered with 
gin bottles or, or botanicals or some nature. And from the word on the street in Japan, one, it's doing well here, but overseas, it seems like it's getting some recognition. People are somewhat excited about what the Japanese are doing with that category specifically. Is there anything exciting out of Japan on, on your map and with regards to the world of gin? And So gin is booming to an almost absurd degree. If you've been watching the industry, as I have for a long time, for a very long time, um, everyone was talking about gin, but it wasn't actually taking off, right? Uh, sales globally decline every year. They still do by about 2%. But what's happening with gin is the same thing what's happening with whiskey. Believe it or not, globally, whiskey sales continue to stagnate or decline. You wouldn't think it. But what's happening is the blended whiskey is declining. The malts and interesting stuff is rising. It's cannibalizing in a way. And that's what's happening with gin. The plastic squeezy bottle bottom shelf gin that's like dying a slow death and the super premiums and the crafts are rising so much so i have a show to you in a gin story to tell you um i was in uh, i started the jss tour two years ago in okinawa and as is completely normal in okinawa i wound up in a speakeasy barkay with mrs tamanaha who owns a fantastic show distillery there and through the translator she said philip san i'm making a gin and even then i'm like yeah sure you're making a gin everyone's making a gin seriously and she says, I need help with a name. By this time, I had had four cocktails and at least six liters of shochu. So I'm like, I got this. And I wrote down this. Uh, <laughs> origin. Ha, ha, ha. There we go. Um, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it up here to, uh, to show it to you. The most perfect replica of my scribble on a bar napkin is now on um, a range of gins that they make and a orange bitters, right? Including one of Japan's first strawberry gins. I mean, it's perfect. That is, and I am, for better or worse, I'm so not surprised yeah. <laughs> by this. I mean, so for those who can't hear, I'm, we're, he's, he's written origin, the word origin with a little hyphen in between the I and the G in gin. And it is perfectly beautifully reproduced on the product a label. Rain, there's four of them now, plus yeah. a, uh, a cocktail bitters. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's shochu-based gin. Yeah. So the short answer to your question is, globally, the countries that are booming are uh, the UK, where gin is slated to sell as much as an export product as um, whiskey, which is 20 billion uh, pounds a year value. Um, the Netherlands, believe it or not, gin never ever sold in Holland or Belgium. It was like, it sold less than eggnog. So it has taken off. Yeah. Uh, my native Ireland, because there's now something like 35 distilleries operating. Many of them want to make whiskey, but they're doing so well. Gin sales in Ireland grew something like 700% last year. Last year? Last year. Wow. Spain has come back. Spain was the world's number one Western gin market. Uh, and then it, uh, as everything, it dipped. But it was reinvigorated by the invention of essentially strawberry gin, uh, called pink gin, by a brand called Puerto de Sintas. And that's, it's on the up again. And the fifth booming country for gin is Japan. Yeah. The first gin symposium. In production or consumption? In, uh, in growth. In, in growth. In growth. Oh, it's, okay. co it's come from nowhere. They've held the first gin symposium last year. I yeah. think the second one just recently, or they're about to do it. Yeah. And in other countries, what happens is the little guys, all the little craft guys, they, uh, they do it and some of them fail, some of them succeed. Then the big guys look at it and they copy it. In Japan, 
It's different. Nobody really did anything. The first craft gin was owned by an English guy, Kino B. Gin. Mm. But when Suntory released Roku, it's as if everyone else in Japan is like, well, Suntory said it's okay. Mm. And now everybody is going yeah. for including many, many shochu distilleries because they know how to distill. Yeah. 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 How, how and where is it consumed? And are there big differences between countries? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. A big driver of the uh, Spanish, Dutch, Irish, and English uh, boom has been the, the Spanish serve of a gin and tonic, a very big, elaborate wine glass, like a Bordeaux glass, the Copa, with a big measure of gin and a fancy tonic and specific garnishes. And that was created in Spain in the depths of Spanish austerity more than 20 years ago because people you know, could not afford to spend very much when they went out. So the bartenders began making bigger and more elaborate gin and tonics because people might only have one or two. So, and that has crossed over to the consumer, fueled by uh, chains of liquor stores. So consumers, normally you build a brand and a serve in the entree, the bartenders recommend it, the consumers drink it, then they go to the liquor store. In those countries, the liquor stores, big chains, big powerful outlets, they began suddenly stocking 10, 20, 30 gins. Mm. And then the soft drinks, the tonic companies, they also promote it very, very much. So it is a perfect storm mm. of things. Interesting, interesting. So are, are people curious about Japanese gin? Does made Very. in Japan, does crafted by Japanese, does that add something to the appeal equation anywhere in there? Yeah, it must be awful being a lazy Japanese person because <laughs> nobody believes you, Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Everyone thinks that every Japanese person in the world is this deeply thoughtful, reverential craftsperson. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, it usually is that way. And I say that as somebody who studied karate for almost 15 years. Um, just Japanese gin, unbelievably popular, Excellent. really. Mm-hmm. And, and again, credit to the big boys. Suntory have spent a bundle of money. Yeah. Like they've had the biggest stand at Bar Convent Berlin uh, in a couple of years. They, they, they really have pushed it. And there are many, many more Japanese gins now experiencing uh, export markets. And Kino B, yeah. at the very top end, has done tremendous work uh, in that regard. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's super exciting. So with that in mind, that there is an established, right now we're kind of in a zeitgeist when Japan has a place in an established market that is also growing, we also have this shochu and further along those categories in Awamori as well that are uh, trying to find a place on that map. And you just spent uh, five days uh, touring, I imagine, primarily distilleries um, and places to dine and sip tasty shochu while you're down there. Uh, tell us a little bit, I guess, maybe first about sort of what is your relationship with Japan and, Jap- and Japanese beverages prior to this trip? What, is, what does that look like? Uh, so I first came to Japan to, uh, to train uh, Shotokan Karate. So there was not a lot of drinking on that trip. Uh, but since then, I've been coming uh, almost every one or two years. So I've done a variety of things. I've retrained the entire sales team, more than 1,000 people, when one of my clients, Ball Secures, switched distributors. Uh, I've done seminars in around eight different cities in Japan. Um, I've been coming the last few times for the JSS to experience the, uh, the shochu culture. So I, I feel I've seen it a little bit. I had a vacation here last year with the family. That's mm-hmm. what happens. 
when you allow your 14 year old stepdaughter to have an opinion where do you want to go on holiday <laughs> Japan <laughs> well, we had lots of air yeah. miles so yeah. we went to Japan yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very nice and so this time you're here looking at Shochi you want to tell us a little bit about the sort of the purpose of this trip and sort of what you saw and what you discovered along the way yeah it's really, it's really cool so I got to know the JSS people through the JSS uh, being the Japan Sake the and Shochi Makers Shochi Association, Association yeah. our, our gracious hosts here yeah. and they uh do great promotion in the US and abroad at the Tales of the Cocktail Festival and other things. So initially, the tour two years ago, they asked me to invite people, which is great. I get to make some great friends because in the world of like trips, the Japan trip is, you know, it's the one you want. And it's just about having influential people who care knowing about shoju. Like there's a huge knowledge gap. Even if you ask me right now, Phil, what's the shochu book? I have no idea. I don't know if there is a shochu book in English, right? So here we have this huge category. No one knows about it. It's mega cool. And also, not for nothing, even in export markets, you get an amazing shochu for a price much lower than a commensurately amazing whiskey or whatnot, right? And my world is generally high-end bars and cocktail bars. So, like, we can make a cocktail with anything. Like, I've had Mao Tai Mai Tais and stuff like that, right? And if you have history and intensity of flavor, you can make a great cocktail with the intense flavor, and you can tell a great story with that history. So, it's a no-brainer. It's it's a gap that we're trying to fill. So, when you went around and you visited these different producers, uh, you've kind of done this sort of tour before, you've visited places before, what was, was there anything about this trip or when you visited places that was, say, different from other places? Did it feel like uh, producers had learned anything over the past few years with, when it comes to communication? Or what did you notice? Is there something evolving? Is there anything changing? Uh, and the most important thing is that I'm here and those guys just outside the studio are there as well. The Japan Saki Shochu Maker Association is continuing to invest. It's working. I'm going to distillers dinners now in Kagoshima, Miyako. And it's distillers I've met before and they know me, right? And they know the bartenders too, more importantly. Uh, there's more shochu distillers now really thinking about exports, really doing stuff. Like uh, we were talking before I opened about uh, Dayame Shochu, a brilliant, brilliant one from Hamada Shuzo uh, Group. And they have got one of the most beautiful packages, concepts, brands ever, laser focused on export. More and more and more. And not to make this the gin podcast, more gin. Yep. So Satsuma have made uh, two fantastic gins, like incredible gins. And they're making whiskey at the Kanasuke uh, distillery. Yeah. So it's it's not a massive surprise because I, I try to stay up to date more or less with what's happening in Japan. But everything is going at a steady upward rate. Are you noticing more interest back home in shochu as a ca- shochu or awamori as a category? Yeah, I mean, okay, New York City, it's a bubble, blah, blah. But um, if you went to 30 of the top cocktail bars, you're going to see shochu cocktails on the menu in one third of them. And that's really only happened in two, three years. That's huge. You've got some brands that are doing really big promotion in the US. Uh, Ichiko is one in particular that have created a a version of, of their shochu and Awamori really for uh, laser-like focused US abroad, high end, high strength. And you know, that's making waves. They're out there making noise. And people are like, oh, there's more than one shochu. So. Is it easy to buy shochu in the US today? 
Is outside it in, New York. Is it, yeah. Can you find the product in stores? Uh, yeah, but the problem is that the current availability on the network is largely the Japanese community, right? So when you're selling Japanese shochu to Japanese people, a lot of the producers don't make a great effort to have the English language on their label. So no one who's not Japanese is going to buy it. So you can get the stuff, you can order it and all that if you know what you're looking for, but no casual person is going to stroll into a liquor store and say, hey, Shoshu Thursdays, boom. Like, because they can't even read the label. Well, you were talking about the products that are starting to pop up that are, you said, laser focused on on export. And they were, in a sense, crafted Mm -hmm. from the ground up for that. What does that product look like, that Shoshu that is crafted for the international market versus, for lack of a better word, standard, something more standard or more um, here in Japan that people would be more accustomed to? Yeah, well, look, this is what people say about gin. There's such a strong domestic market for shochu, it can make you lazy, right? But the problem with the Japanese domestic market for shochu is every time somebody dies, you lose a shochu drinker, right? And they're not recruiting new ones, right? So exports are the way to go. Anyway, in general, and this is largely a personal opinion, but then again, I'm an expert, so this is important. (laughs) Uh, I think that the uh, opportunity for shochu abroad is Honkaku Shochu, obviously, uh, high strength. So essentially, Awamori, 40% and up, and uh, intense flavors. There's no point being neutral. There's no point, I think, selling 25% uh, Shochu because that is best drunk on its own or hot. And nobody is going to go from not drinking Shochu to essentially straight Shochu in one go. I think the route in, we all know, is cocktails, is mixed drinks, and then you have that strength. And more importantly, bartenders, even our group here in this week, they, they, none of them, most of them is their first time in Japan, basically had never tasted shochu. Within a day or two, they had established their preferences, which were those preferences. Yeah. And that is what Ichiko has done. That is what uh, I think Dayama are planning to do. Like all 40% and up. Yeah. So just to repeat what you said, you, you believe that the... First step to convince consumers is through cocktails. And a straight shochu is going to have a hard time. I think so, yes. Yeah. I mean, and yourself, how do you drink shochu? What's your favorite way of well, drinking Well, I'm, I'm not a consumer. I, I love drinking shochu straight. I love drinking everything straight, mm-hmm. right? And I have a lot at home. Um, but it's been my life spirits for 30 sure. years now. Um, the regular person, even the regular bartender, the first time they tasted their idea is, how can I mix this, right? And a consumer... Consumers do not have uh, the advantage of even having tasted many, many different things. The, there is a joke among high-end cocktail bars that uh, customers sometimes come in and it's like, do you have Macallan? And I was like, oh, no, I don't have Macallan, but we have all... Okay, I'll have a Grey Goose. <laughs> and I've actually heard that happening yeah. in real time. And these are well-educated consumers, wealthy people, right? But they're busy learning about everything else in the world except spirits. Mm. So it is something that I think should be hand-sold right, by the bartender, recommended, mixed, because mixing lowers the, uh, the barrier to entry, the pain if you get it wrong. And eventually, you could go from drinking uh, the equivalent of a whiskey sour to drinking whiskey straight. But I don't think anyone who drinks whiskey straight the first time thinks, this is it, I'm not mixing anything else. <laughs> you, you mentioned the education. I know that's been a, a huge part of your, your career and something you spend a lot of time on. Going around visiting these different producers, 
And as you said, a lot of the people that are traveling with you this time around, it's their first real exposure, mm-hmm. not just to Japan, but to the category as well in a, in a real meaningful way. What was the education process like for you guys when you were visiting? Was it enlightening? Were you getting the information that you needed? What was, I'm, I'm curious as to how that product was being communicated. It's not, it's not every day that a group like yours just rolls through a whole bunch of breweries. Um, and I'm sort of, I'm interested in if you feel like they did a good job, not just communicating their individual brand or product, um, but the value of Chochu as a category in general and sort of what you found to be useful, insightful, or maybe areas even where they've fallen short? No, so I've now, I, I don't know, I've probably been to 20 distilleries now, 10 on the last one, 10 on this one. And, you know, we've been to, you know, Okinawa, Miyako, Kagoshima, Oita, Beppo, all these places. Generally, people do an amazing job. Even in the tiniest distillery, they explain Koji very well. And that's the only thing that can be a little tricky to understand. And fermentation has become such a hot topic in cuisine and even in cocktails now, and definitely in spirits, that people come with a certain degree of uh, information. And we're starting with the very top bartenders. These are not the first distilleries they've been to. Certainly, they might be the first ones in Japan. But they ask questions, you know, how many tons of grain, how long the fermentation, uh, proprietary yeast, proprietary koji, uh, how long aging, what vessel. So they're like little machines. It's like, oh, show you today. Fine. These are the questions. Yeah. So they have the context to be able to. Exactly. Yeah. And they, 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 can, the story, yeah. they can slot us into a category. It's like, okay, now I understand shochu. Right. And the, the, key, the key thing is the koji. And we have been in, you know, $10 million distilleries with beautiful visitor centers, amazing stuff and videos and we've been in places you know that look like they were rejected for harry potter you know, yeah. dusty and things yeah. and everybody has explained it really well okay so yeah. i i really you know you could say oh let's go to less distilleries or something like that mm-hmm. it can be very tiring but we're here to learn so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely how about outside of the distillery do you have any other exp- interesting experiences along the way either out dining or out any any discoveries as a, as a team this time around i mean you haven't done karaoke to these young karaoke in Kagoshima, this is true. right this is true but no one of the coolest ones was um somewhere on the road from uh beppo to uh kagoshima we stopped in at a extremely famous and i'm ashamed i can't remember the name uh glass making and glass cutting factory and we got a workshop on how to etch glass. And then we all etched our own glasses on a wheel oh, yeah. with our own design and took them away. And that uh, the little place where you do it, the workshop, is next to the shop. Yeah. So you, you walk through the shop and you see all their stuff. Yeah. And then you work really hard on your one. And you're like, this is just, it's, it's, this is like when your kid comes home, mom, I made this. Like it was a complete mess. It made, it gave you so much respect for the incredible work that they do, you know, and it reflects well on the craftsmanship of Japan generally. So you you kind of touched on a little bit here and there while you're, um, when you were talking about, you know, the education, the communication and, you know, using it in cocktails and, you know, high proof and these things of that nature. What, going forward when it comes to communicating the value of shochu and aomori as well too, um, as a category, what are the, what do you feel like now are kind of the key words or what are going to be the key elements in really getting people excited about the potential of those categories? That's a really good question. And it's something that, you know, I turn over in my mind from time to time. First of all, people need to know just how popular it is. 
they need to know that shochu outsells sake in Japan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? That is a huge, yeah. huge factor, yeah. right? Uh, they need to know about the multiple bases for shochu. There's more than 40 different things you can make shochu from, which is pretty unique. Yeah. Right? Does um, that make the communication more challenging? Uh, not really, because at the moment, there's almost no communication yeah. apart from the JSS. So in a way, you've got a free field. Yeah. Right? There's, yeah. there's no conflicting voices. Yeah. Uh, there's no voices at all. And I think something along the lines of uh, the, the Japanese traditions of drinking uh, shochu, even if we don't expect foreigners to drink it that way. Because I love to say the best-selling spirit in Scotland is not whiskey, right? Nor in Ireland. And the number one beer in Ireland is not Guinness, right? But knowing about the history and the province is, is really important. And then when you export a spirit, you have to let the local people take it, pick it up and run with it. You know, that's why French people love uh, scotch, right? It's why Americans and Asians love cognac. They drink it in different ways, right? Mm. People drink Louis Trez with congee in China. So they'll, they'll tell you how they want to drink it. It's just our job to communicate the history and the quality and, and get it in front of people. And then let them interpretate and interpret that in a way that makes sense and is meaningful for them that they can sort of extrapolate into their own market. I suppose, actually, if I can expand on my answer. Yeah, please do. Um, a very important thing will be educating people on different types of shochu, barley, sweet potato, whatever. Um, at the moment, Baijiu, the Chinese national distillate, is doing a, a relatively large push to be exported. And as you know, it's the world's most valuable spirit. There's one brand of Baijiu. Baiju, Kwaichao Maotai, that is worth more than the world's largest liquor company, Diageo. So, but if you don't know that there are different categories of Baiju, you know, rice aroma, soy aroma, da da da, and somebody gives you a Baiju and you don't like it, you'll think, oh, well, Baiju is not my job. It's not my, it's not for me. Yeah. Right? Like the person who gets a glass of Lagavulin, don't like it. So, well, don't like whiskey, that's it. So, the, explaining the categories. And letting people say, okay, I don't like barley, but I like sweet potato, or I like rice, or I like sugar cane. Yeah. That will be key in the short term. Yeah. yeah, That's a pretty clear-cut index that people can go, oh, like, there's something out there. There's still something out there for me to try. And yeah, it's like if you went to a whiskey tasting and they had yeah. like a bourbon, a scotch, a peated scotch, yeah. and an Irish, and you taste them, and you're like, okay, well, I kind of like this. And then you go off down that road. Right. Instead yeah. of somebody giving you a glass of, you know, Ardbeg saying, try this. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with the, um, there's a lot of age stuff that's popping up out there nowadays, but barrel aged or no different things. A lot of times it's maybe glass bottle or, you know, stainless, but you're starting to see a lot of colored stuff out there that has a lot of its sort of own unique characters. Does that have a place in the market? Yeah, no, they're all, they're, they're all great. But as I say, I think I would focus, um, if I was running JSS on uh, Ongaku, Genshu, high strength. And age shochu is amazing, um, but it does muddy the waters somewhat with people thinking like, oh, is it, you know, they're trying to understand it. Oh, is this like whiskey? Because then it's kind of like shitty whiskey, yeah. right? Same thing, you can age Geneva and there's delicious aged Genevers, but it can be confusing for people as yeah. to what category they should put it in. Especially at so many entry point level. Yeah, and also your aging, your typical aging is glass or stainless steel or ceramic, what I call non-reactive aging that produces different results. And it goes for longer. This one was actually aged in stainless steel, I think. 
Um, and you've got some producers like Satsuma who age in Canadian oak barrels or Kanesuke, they do cognac and stuff. So it it's a lot of potential confusion. At the same time, it's good to have some big players in the market um, who come in at a high price and they put their stake in the ground and say, this is it, this is what we are. We're, you know, 16-year-old barrel-age, shochu, whatever, and this is it. Because they provide a great frame for everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I guess, so along that line, then, is, is you're talk, we're talking about the ex- explosion of gin in, in recent years. Um, and just a lot of spirits and botanicals and things like that in general, not just here in Japan, but globally. Looking at sort of trends and how some of some categories have grown and expanded, do you see any parallels in relation to whether how it's crafted or maybe the relationship between shochu and awamori or anything between other categories that have developed that you feel like the industry might be able to learn from or be able to sort of glean some insight from as to how to proceed going forward? Yeah, yeah. You, we were talking yeah. about this just before we started. Um, I won't, you know, I, I left my my uh, my crystal ball at home, uh, but... Here, you can borrow mine. Yeah. <laughs> In that case, I want to know who's winning. I want to know who's winning the rugby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we can examine other things. One that springs to mind is uh, tequila, right? So tequila, national spirit, like shochu. Um, loads of history, like shochu. When it began to be exported, it was only drunk in ethnic Mexican restaurants, the way that uh, for example, sake has fallen into that trap a little bit, yeah. right? People Definitely. drink sake. Yeah, right? I think so. You know much more about it than me, Sebastian. Um, and tequila took a long time to climb out of that uh, straitjacket, yeah. you know? And there's no real way to say how they did it except through premiumization and engaging the on-trade with education. Lots of trips to Mexico, lots of seminars, uh, the promotion of 100% blue agave tequila, which has a direct parallel to Honkaku, Shochu, and indeed Awamori. Um, even, to be honest, higher strength, yeah. because tequila would always be uh, 35, 38% in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And it had to go up to 40 or more for export reasons to countries like the US. Of Northern America. So that's one parallel. Yeah. And by the way, tequila is killing it. They can't grow yeah. enough agaves. You probably know yeah. all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah so that's yeah. one. How does mezcal fit into that equation? Is, is, well, it, is that Aomori? <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, me- mezcal is that thing now. It's a mega hype. It's yeah. the hottest thing, yeah. right? But it's not actually selling a lot. Okay. It ha- it's having a boom in yeah. Mexico itself. Okay. But the total U.S. market for all mezcal is only 400,000 cases, which is not which that not, much yeah. generally. So, But it was like that with... Um, luxury gin as well 10 years ago like the hendrix brand if you ask somebody 10 years ago how many cases does it sell people go oh 1 million 2 million 4 million and it was selling 300,000 cases right mm-hmm. and but mezcal is something like shochu in the future and like uh, tequila in the past it has to be hand sold you have to give people a story and a way to understand it and a structure so for tequila 100% blue agave was that people the people who would go, oh, I only drink McAllen's. Oh, I only drink Don Julio, 100% Blue Gabby. you got to give them a story. And when you sell it to somebody, you're not giving them the story. You're giving them the story to tell somebody else to make them look better. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, gin, ethnic, English, really, 
because Holland did not invent gin. Gin was invented in in, in London, the gin that we know today. Um, huge mega spirit, but began declining every time somebody dies. You lose a gin drinker. Uh, the brands were a little lazy because they had a good domestic market, not unlike Shoshu Distillers to Japan. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it began to turn around with new ownership of historic brands like Plymouth with uh, the rise of craft brands like Sipsmith and Hendrix itself, part of a mega. But it took, like Hendrix has been given the credit for revitalizing gin. Hendrix has been around for almost 20 years, right? It did not come from nowhere. Right? Maybe you've only heard of it in the last few years. Um, and they did, they, they achieved the tipping points of gin. And they have a big industry behind them, just as Shochu does, through the entree, through education. So there's a lot of positive, optimistic uh, points of view you can have about Shoji. It has to go through the same process. There I are think certain so. stages that everybody has to kind of trudge through in order to. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, going, it's not about choosing the best influencer. Well, I think it, now everyone's an influencer. Yeah. Like it used to be you took out a, a TV ad or yeah. the New York Times or the London Times and you would reach 60% of your market. Yeah. But now you only reach 30% of your market, right? So you need to communicate uh, online, certainly. But because we live in an experience economy, right? We're relatively wealthy, relatively happy, relatively successful. You know, I can afford this phone. You can afford that phone. But can you get the reservation at that special bar in Los Angeles? Because I can get that, you know. Or you can get the reservation at Noma. Right, it's about experiences, and a drink is pure experience because otherwise it's just a medical spirit. <laughs> yeah, I have to ask you a little bit about sake while we're here. What's anything about sake have you excited, particularly in the cocktail world? I mean, we're at that point we're outside of the realm of spirits, but you find a lot of people internationally find trying to find ways to integrate sake or nihonshu into cocktails in one format or another for one reason or another. I'm sort of curious your take on where that's at. Yeah, no, I think sake uh, continues to um, be popular. And in the very top bars, we're talking about the you know, top 300 bars in the world, it's one of those things you mix with. You're like, oh, might make this with sake. So certainly outside Japan, the emphasis now, in my opinion, should be on continually activating it, keeping it alive, because there's been a wave of interest. But as an industry, uh, as the JSS, you've got to keep promoting it keep coming up with new and different ways to put it front and center in bartenders and buyers' minds. They think, oh yeah, sake. Because the sake cocktails are there. They're yeah. on the menus. Yeah. People are uh, drinking it, not in Japanese restaurants, which is great, yeah. right? And just like with shochu and just like with baijo, you have to keep educating people as to the categories of sake. Yeah, yeah so it's not the old, you know, hot sake, James Bond movie type thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And the whole boom in relatively lower uh, alcohol spirits uh food pairing can only be a good thing for sake if handled correctly i'm just i'm curious what what's got you excited now kind of after this trip you did this is your second round uh, on this tour and you just spent a week with a, a lot of really exciting and inspiring folks that are doing a lot of great work around the world what, what are you taking home from this trip this time around uh, I've seen some people doing some really clever stuff. So one brand has isolated its own strain of sweet potato and 
dug deep into the molecular process of distilling. So their export shochu, which is absolutely delicious and 40% alcohol, has the nose of the most beautiful, freshest peeled lychee that you've ever had in your life. And when you taste it, so it's very encouraging to see people doing that depth of work with that degree of professionalism and delivering stuff. At the other far end of the spectrum, we've seen like ultra craft stuff like distilleries where two people work and classic shochu to a degree that we salivate over. Those those are like, you know, mezcal shochus. And for the other bartenders to see, but also for me, it's so nice to know they're there. They're connected with the JSS. We're trying to say, hey, look, you know, here's my email address. When you come to New York, look me up. When you're in uh, Oslo, when you're in Singapore, come and see us, right? Because the big problem is that many of the distillers, <laughs> not only do they not leave Japan, they rarely come to Tokyo. So the future has to be exports because exports as well as sales hold up a mirror to what you do domestically. It could also help revitalize shochu domestically and get younger people drinking it who are currently drinking gin. <laughs> yeah. For a market that does, hasn't yet developed a palate for the category as a whole, how easy or difficult is it to introduce something that super craft element where you've got two or three people that are just doing their thing that have dug in and they're just creating something that is just really uniquely their own. People haven't necessarily experienced the rainbow of flavor, I guess you could say, that's out there. What is yeah, the challenge well, look, there? On the one hand, you could see it's one dimensional, but mm. the job of a mixologist mm. is to take ingredients and make a delicious drink and make the delicious drink that's delicious because of the ingredients, not despite them. That's why it's so hard to mix with vodka. You don't have a lot of intensity of flavor there. Vodka's the hardest spirit to mix with, right? But if you give me an awamori, right, I got lots to work with there, right? And I can make a drink that, you know, you can give to a 22-year-old person just out of college, and they will love it. It'll be delicious, and they'll love it because it shows you, right? And the, the dogma is that hopefully you keep that person drinking shochu and they might drink, they might want to drink that cocktail their whole life, but perhaps they'll get interested. You know, I want to to try that stuff neat or maybe you'll make that for me and you go from having a, a, you know, a long fruity drink to having an old fashioned to maybe even drinking it straight, Mm -hmm. which is what has happened uh, with agave spirits in the US. The US, outside Mexico, the US are mega connoisseurs of tequila more than any other country in the world. The, people know their stuff. They're willing to pay for it. They drink it straight, snifters, like especially in the West Coast. Yeah. So who knows? That might be the thing we showed you too. That's exciting. I, I, I like that vision for the future. I like I, I like your crystal ball. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. No, I, I, we're, I, you are on a super intense schedule here. You have been running nonstop, and I know it's all your – final day here in Tokyo. And so you probably only have about a dozen places you still have to visit tonight. Um, if there's any last things that you want to share or promote or push, you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet or if you have events or anything's coming up that you would like to share with our listeners or anything you'd like to share with the world of Shochu Curious out there? Yeah, if, if you are Shochu Curious, uh, please follow me on Instagram. It's Philip with a single L. S Duff, that's P H I L I P S D U F F. On Twitter, it's the same, but no S, so it's P H I L I P D U F F. And on Facebook, like everywhere, I'm Philip Duff. Um, I would like everybody to drink more shochu. So if you already drink shochu, 
try some awamoris, try some different stuff. If you don't drink shochu, find some shochu and drink it, right? Ideally, find a bar, a Japanese bar, if uh, there's none other in your area that has it, and ask the bartender to taste some with you and come up with some kind of a cocktail, right? And after you've had one type of shochu, have another one. Make it like a monthly project. I'm going to taste one different shochu every month, and at the end of the year, you've had 12, and that makes you probably the expert in your area. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a good time to jump in. You can you can become the expert right about now. Still, there's still give, room give, for that. Give shochu for Christmas. Christmas yeah. is right in the corner. There you go. Yeah. There you go. It is that time. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Philip, thank you so much uh, for making time on this whirlwind tour uh, that you're on and is almost completed. I really appreciate it. Um, Sebastian. Well, thank you for uh, your energy and your passion. I mean, it's, I can, we can really feel it here. And uh, I hope it's going to inspire our listeners as well. I hope so. Well, I did have some awamori. You, you can't see it. I had some awamori in front of me. <laughs> Well, we're doing it with a mango use. It was particularly delicious. But uh, Sebastian, Justin, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Um, and hopefully next, next time we'll have to catch up with you in New York over a bottle of shochu. I know, just the place. Perfect. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. Excellent. And so that wraps it up for one more episode of Sake on Air. Uh, please do send your questions, thoughts, feedback to questions at sakeonair.com. And you can follow us at, at Sake on Air on all of your favorite social media channels. For those of you out there who have not yet, we would love a review. Reviews help us a great deal, uh, more than you would could possibly imagine, actually. So if you could take a moment out of your day to do that, um, it would mean the world to us uh, here at the show. And with that, we will see you again in another couple of weeks. Sebastian, Philip, thank you so much. 